0: Hello, and welcome to the Lakewood Anglican Podcast. My name's Deacon Mark Hottle, and I'm glad you have found us. We put up various content from time to time. Most of it's the sermons that are given at our weekly worship services. Uh, This episode's a little different, though, because it's from a Bible study we're doing at the moment. Uh, The Bible study we're going through is called Scripture Through the Eyes of Genesis. We're looking at the beginning of the book of Genesis, especially chapters 1 through 4, and... Using what we learn there to better understand all of the account that follows of our Lord's actions that are uh, related as the story unfolds in the rest of Scripture. I hope you enjoy the study and will let us know if it's helpful or if you want to learn more. You can contact us using the email office at lakewoodanglican.com or find us on the web at lakewoodanglican.com or on Facebook. All that being said, let's get started. All right. So before we jump into tonight's discussion, I wanted to uh, let anyone who had musings or questions from last week um pose those and we can talk about that here at the beginning
1: um I have one thought uh after listening um and sort of reading through some of Genesis in the very beginning um so when God is going through and he's creating everything uh in the very beginning of it uh Mm -hmm. he saw the light and it was good but then when God uh made the dome, um, it was just so. Yes. Uh, That was something that was jumping out at me. Okay, good.
0: Um, Let me... I'm preaching this week, so I raided Father Sean. I have a whole milk crate here. And did I have... Did I have my new translation of the Torah
2: last week for you guys? Did I have that yet? No. Okay. Very exciting.
0: At least it's exciting for me. This is my newest book in the collection. It's called The Five Books of Moses. This is a translation of the Torah or the Pentateuch as we know it by a Jewish scholar.
2: Um, His name is Everett Fox.
0: So uh, some of the dedications he has in his translating is trying to keep some of the rhythms you find in Hebrew, some of the rhyming and pairing, uh, trying to carry that over into uh, the English more thoroughly. so let me read that portion that Tyler's referencing here. We finished day one, right? That was light and darkness, called the light day, called the darkness night. So, creation of time, or the, the distinction between time. And then it says in this translation, God said, Let there be a dome mid the waters, and let it separate the waters, let it separate waters from waters. God made the dome and separated the waters that were below the dome from the waters that were above the dome. It was so God called the dome heaven. There was setting. There was dawning.
2: Second day. Um, so this is the second day. Oh, it's the, is it the only day Tyler? Did you check? Good, good, good.
0: It's the only day where it's not declared good. Yeah. That's a great, great observation there, Tyler. Hmm.
3: Okay, so this isn't called good, is it? Either, is it? Say again. The, The first day, it doesn't say it was good. And the second day, it doesn't say it was good.
2: Uh, Day one, it says it was good in verse four. Oh, okay. I see. Um, So
0: this is a great opportunity uh, for me to further clarify what kind of book we're reading. This is uh, one scholar describes this as Jewish meditation literature. So what does that mean? Um, to better understand what that means let's go to Psalm 1 and
2: read Psalm 1 did anyone incidentally from last week did anyone go read Psalm 1 no okay that's fine
4: I was memorizing the Psalms a while back and I got as far as maybe Psalm 4 so I know Psalm 1 really well
0: (laughs) Oh, good good that's excellent it's great to memorize the psalms. i found those at least for myself the easiest to memorize i try and memorize them at work when i'm walking in between jobs and whatnot uh
2: okay so who will read psalm one for us i can do it okay
1: that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish.
0: Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without
2: end, amen. Okay, why do we do that? Every time we read a psalm in the liturgy, we do that. Any guesses? Praising God? Yeah. Where do the psalms fall in our scriptures?
4: In the Old Testament.
2: Old Testament.
4: Is it to sort of help us see the Trinity at work? In the Psalms?
0: Yeah. The reason why we say that after the Psalms in particular is because the Psalms are kind of the, a representative portion of the Old Testament. And you get you get the three readings, the Old Testament, the Epistle, and the Gospel. And normally in daily prayer, daily office you always end all three of those with the same ending, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So we're reminded every day of their equality
2: of weight. And then
0: just so you don't forget that the Old Testament is truly Christian scripture, every time you read the Psalms, which ends up being representative of the whole Old Testament, You confess to the name of the Trinity, and then you give him glory as a way of reminding yourself the Old Testament is our scripture, and it is worthy of our attention.
2: Um, So I don't know if you
0: folks have ever run into it, but there are some Christians who just ignore the Old Testament and say it's not our Testament. Our Testament is the New Testament. And we read out of the New Testament and we preach out of the New Testament, and we don't need to go into the Old Testament because we're New Testament people. Um,
2: if you haven't ever run into that, you might have heard of some of the people. Uh have you ever heard of John MacArthur? Mm-hmm. He's in that camp.
0: Not as hardcore as some people, but if you pay careful attention, he rarely deviates into the Old Testament.
2: Um, So
0: part of our liturgy is saying, hey, this this stuff is important. This is a witness to Christ as well, and we need to pay attention to it, which as I'm sure we are all learning more and more, I know I am as we do this study, there is much to pay attention to. Okay, so Psalm 1. Tell me, as we look at Psalm 1, what's the relationship between this blessed man, this
2: righteous man, and Scripture? And the law, or the Torah? And what does Torah mean? Have we gone over this yet? No.
3: That the the okay. tov and raw, or is that not where you were going for?
0: Uh, I'm actually still hunting, trying to confirm that the alliteration there, tov Ra, tov ra, has actual linguistic connections. Okay. Um,
2: I suspect it does, but I I can't yet like totally conclude that. Um. That wasn't
0: what I was going for, but thank you for remembering to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Tov ra we often translate it law in English. Uh, I find it more helpful to translate it as instruction. So what's the difference? Uh, law is not a bad translation, but as Westerners, we kind of, bring with us all these judicial thinking and language baggage to law. So it's like rules. Uh, And especially as we think through, uh, and often as we've been taught the 10 commandments, they're rules that we need to obey and follow. They draw the line and say, you know, on this side, you're on the right side of the tracks, and on that side, you're on the wrong side of the tracks. Um, But it's, it's impartial.
2: It's cold. It's just the law.
0: Um, and Torah uh, is deeper than that. Torah is instruction. Torah is how to live well. Um, Torah, being Torah obedient leads to wisdom. And biblical wisdom is how to live life well. So Torah teaches you, how to live wisely? It's not like a judicial line, right and wrong. It's like a path of, hey, walk in this path, walk
2: in this way. Questions on that
0: Okay, sorry, I keep running down these rabbit trails because they're all they're things I want you to to know and continually upload into your thinking as we have these discussions. Okay, so back to my other question. What's the relationship between this blessed man and Torah?
3: So In verse 2, when it says the law, is it is that the Torah?
2: So it says his delight is in it. Mm-hmm. And he meditates day and night. Yeah. Have you ever delighted in the Ten Commandments?
0: Not particularly. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's like, it's a little bit of a hard concept, right? I mean, it is for me when I look at the 10 commandments, I'm like, "Ah, for so long, I've treated these as like the cold legal line. How do I delight in these?
4: I think um, when I, uh, when I think about The law as a kind of, like you were saying, instruction or like a pattern for living in right relationship with your neighbor and also with God. You know, you can delight in imagining what that world would be like, you know, like if everyone obeyed all the Ten Commandments.
2: Life would be awesome.
4: Things would be great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And our relationship with God would be right, you know, and that would be great.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he delights in them. What
0: else?
5: More recently, I uh, read something that invited me to consider the Ten Commandments, not just um, law, but a way that uh, God exposes to us His attributes, right? So he, there is no darkness in him. He doesn't lie, right? There's no shadow of turning or you know, so if you go down and and uh, think of the Tenth commandment says, um, a gift to us of displaying his uh, magnificent attributes even though we fall short it makes that list uh actually very exciting to to um you know have the veil pulled back a little bit or be reminded of the multifaceted characteristics of of a perfect awesome god
2: which if you look at
0: the different religions around the world, both at the time that the Hebrew authors wrote this down, and even in our time, it's
2: very abnormal. Like most of the world religions, you're trying to figure out what your God wants, how you pissed him off,
0: excuse my language, that's strong for me (laughs) and what you can do to get back in his good graces.
2: Right. And if you look at the Greek world, you've got temples all over the place that are constantly,
0: uh, people are showing up to offer sacrifices to the gods to appease them and to stay in their good graces.
2: What's the most common thing
0: to be doing if you show up at the temple in Jerusalem to sacrifice? All the sacrifices, what's the most common thing?
2: It's saying thank you.
0: You look at all the different sacrifices you can can be given, the most common thing to be doing when you show up in Jerusalem is saying thank you. And more than likely, after you say thank you with whatever you sacrifice, God's instruction is to take that thing you said thank you with and then go have a celebration, go eat it yourself. Uh, it's a very, very odd relationship compared to the rest of the world's
5: religion. Where are you getting this from? Is this Le- Leviticus or? This concept of bringing a um, offering at the temple, and then you say thank you, and then go eat it? Or what what are you talking about?
0: (laughs) You can find it in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy has a summary of all the different offerings at the beginning of it. By summary, I mean like 20 chapters. But hey, it's a summary.
2: and yeah, there's there's thank offerings. There's
0: offerings where, like, you bring a feast to say thank you to God, and you give it to God, and then He gives it back to you, and He says, "Enjoy it." That's basically how the the law works, or the the
2: Torah in that portion that um, that sacrifice works. I'll find it, and I'll I'll. Uh, have it ready for you next week okay yeah okay Okay,
0: good so um
3: i have a question yeah if we before we move on um i was wondering if you think that in those other religions even though it ultimately ultimately may feel hopeless if or still like up to chance that even if they follow the laws they'll be in good graces do you think that they would also feel thankful for those laws in those religions that they even have a chance. Um, that they even have a chance to win back favor. Um, but maybe it's not the, not, I mean, it's not quite the same, but yeah. Um, I mean, I've
0: talked to people who aren't Christian and they feel thankful for them. Um, I guess it, it kind of comes down to what kind of thankfulness is there. Like, what's the basis of your thankfulness? If you're glad that you even have a chance,
2: that's a lot different than you're glad that you have every chance and he's rooting for you, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I mean, if you look at some world religions, if you're the Apostle Peter, life isn't real good after that rooster crows. Like,
2: for eternity and yet only a matter of days later
0: Jesus and Peter are hashing that out again and instead of Peter being on the roasting rack Jesus is setting him up taking him back through those three opportunities to confess his name and asking him do you love me and when he says, yes, he says, feed my sheep. Like, how do you go from denying your Lord to him putting you in charge of taking care of your brothers and sisters who are his children? That's, that's a, there's a different kind of thankfulness in light of that, I think. But of course, we can't experience that, both things at the same time and kind of parse out the difference emotionally.
3: Right. Yeah, I guess one sort of out of fear. Um, right. Uh, yeah. And and then the others out of
2: yeah, more out of gratitude. I know it yeah. is it, hard to describe. Yeah, but sometimes we operate
0: that way. At least I do. Um, you might as well. I f- I catch myself sometimes behaving as if. I've done something wrong and I've either lost God's protection or are under his judgment and I've got to figure out how to
2: make it right. Like what sin did I commit
0: that I need to confess or where did I just do something really foolish that has led down this track? Um,
2: why doesn't God like me today? Which, that's not how God works. If you look at scripture, it's very clear that's not how God works. But we fall into that trap. Um, And it's, you get things like uh, in Luke, um, he says, Fear not, little children, for
0: it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Father who has good pleasure of giving you the kingdom is not the kind of father who plays whack-a-mole with you on Wednesday nights for fun.
2: Uh, okay. We're still um, running down
0: an original rabbit trail.
5: Yeah, well, how does all this relate to Genesis? Am I the only <laughs> one that's... I'm Having
0: a hard time connecting it? Yeah. That's okay. Uh, okay. That's because we're we're making the turn now. All right, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he. Meditates. Meditates, right. So, this word
2: meditate there, it's the same word used elsewhere
0: for the sounds and activity. Yeah, that animals or we use when we're eating our food and like chewing over it. So if you stuck a microphone in front of a cow while it was chewing its cud, and there'd be like soft gruntings and, you know, scrapings of teeth and whatnot, and just kind of this quiet enjoyment of it, that's this word. So, um, the, uh, scholar I was referencing earlier, his name is Dr. Tim Mackey, and he describes this as Jewish meditation literature and What he means by that is you're supposed to like quietly chew it, literally sit there and quietly read it to yourself and just like stew over it and let it roll through your heart and mind and come back to it again and again and again. And then go read a different part and come back to the one you're on and reflect on what you had read before based on that new passage you just read again and again and again and you spend an entire life just meditating on all of this and as you meditate stuff
2: comes out so that's
0: what this literature is jewish meditation literature we're supposed to read it again and again and again so tyler we started out by you saying hey on day two god doesn't say it's good that's weird it's the only day he doesn't say that and I don't know what that means, but that's exciting because if the author intentionally left that out, there's something there for us to understand. And it's it's like a little breadcrumb, a little invitation to come meditate and come chew on this, chew on this, and you're not going to get it potentially at first. In fact, you might not get it for like five years as you chew on it, but at some point you're going to chew on something else and that something else is going to help you understand what's going on here. And that's the whole point, which in my mind is genius uh, as far as human literature goes and clearly divine as far as the inspiration of the Holy Spirit participates in giving this to us.
2: So that gets us back to Genesis. And
0: we're going to talk about a very specific portion of this chapter this week. And to get us into that, I would like a show of hands
2: to ask you a question. You don't have to show your hand, but if you want to, please don't be bashful. I'm interested to know who is annoyed at times by vestments at church. Um, uh, I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Who is annoyed at times by all the fancy clothing that we seem to put on and change and worry about what the color is and the cut of it and whether it's traditional or not?
2: Seth is like, oh, yes.
6: (laughs) I don't see you or I don't see it as being annoyed, but I see it as being, I don't think they know what they're doing
0: know what they're doing does anyone have this ever have the opinion of like man we are just paying way too much attention on something that isn't worth our time or we've I've lost paid track of what's important here
1: no i've never paid attention i'm not
2: it, it's just
0: not on the radar for you tyler no I, okay it, what what tradition did you grow up in catholic Okay, that's why it's not on the radar. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, very loosely, but yeah. yeah. Well,
0: you've been seeing it all your life, right?
1: Uh, yeah. At some level. It's just kind of like I don't know.
2: That's what we wear. It's nice. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. You said yeah. Uh, doesn't register. Oh,
5: yeah. I'm exposing my Presbyterian background, right? Yeah. I didn't grow up Catholic, so uh, it's it's much more foreign to me. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Seth, you grew up Presbyterian
3: too, right? Um, not Presbyterian, but Evangelical, non-denom. Okay. Um, and yet like uh, just wearing jeans, you know, or whatever. <laughs> We didn't have vestments, Um, but so, I mean, and I, and I totally understand or I've come to learn a lot over the years of the significance of the various vestments and the colors and all that stuff. But sometimes um, especially in like early Lakewood Anglican days, when we were much smaller, it seemed like the fuss of planning all of that and having the crew to, to, set everything up on the altar and, you know, all of that stuff was like a little bit much
2: and maybe not necessary. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Um, it was really funny when I did this class on Sunday and I asked who was annoyed by the vestments father, Sean, and I were the only ones who raised our hands (laughs) and the two of us are like, you're kidding. No one else.
2: (laughs) Um,
0: so we'll we'll come back to vestments, and I'll explain later how that connects to what we're going to read tonight. Um, and we're
2: going to spend our time in day six.
0: So we're going to read Genesis uh, chapter one, verses 24 through... Let's go to 31. Who will read
2: 24 to 31 for us? I can read. Great.
4: And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground.
0: Um, I want us to just make observations about these people that God makes. Uh, we're going to make observations. We're going to state facts about these people that you see in, uh, scripture. And once we're done stating facts, then we're going to get to the fun part of asking questions about those facts. So at the beginning here, uh, I know it's hard, but put your tunnel vision on and stick to the facts, the facts. So
2: tell me about these people that God makes.
6: He makes them in our image and our likeness.
2: Okay. And they have dominion over the rest of creation. You're male and female. Yep. Yeah. He blessed them. Okay. And, and he, what was the blessing? Well, to be fruitful uh, and increase in number okay. uh, and subdue the earth.
6: Yeah. Mark, is, is there any significance to the, the us, let us make man in our image? I mean, who, who who's with God here?
0: <laughs> Welcome to an ancient debate. We'll talk about that in a minute, but that's a good
2: observation, Ken. Anything else you see about these people? They have green plants for food. Yeah. Uh, they're instructed to subdue the earth. Yeah. One more
3: observation. Is in, in, um, I guess this is a question, but <laughs> it, it says it was very good. So I'm not sure if he's specifically talking to the stuff he created on this day or everything beforehand as
2: well uh yeah god saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good yeah so um yeah, i think the observation that comes out of that is there are a lot of good things but it's not very good until these people show up in the story right, right, yep. Okay. All right, good observations. Now the fun part. Questions. So let's start
0: with Ken's question. Uh, it's an ancient debate what's going on there with God saying, Let us make man in our image. Um,
2: there's
0: a couple of options. Uh, one is what's going on here is the royal we, the royal plural. And so when God starts talking, he talks in a
2: royal plurality, calling himself we and us instead of me and my, purely for the sake of um um him being
0: a royal entity. So that's option one. Uh, option two is this is a divine uh, revelation of the Trinity. And you've read so little of this meditation literature yet that uh, you don't realize that's what's going on. And this is actually a confession of the Trinity in Genesis chapter one. And if you were to read the rest of this and reflect on it, if you came back here, you'd realize that the plurality in this particular verse is talking about the Trinity.
2: Um, So that's option two.
0: Uh, Option three is God is talking to his divine counsel.
2: So you see a
0: number of times in scripture where God seems to have like this throne room like situation where he has kind of courtiers hanging about uh probably the most famous is the beginning of Job where it says the sons of God showed up and presented themselves to God and the Satan was with them and. God's
2: like, hey, Satan, how's it going? Where have you been?
0: And thus kicks off Job. So this this divine throne room setting where it's God and all these people hanging out. um, But they're not people.
2: They're something else. So some sort of
0: angelic presence going on. Uh, You see this in other really weird places. Uh, There's one account
2: um, in,
0: I think it's in one of the kings, um, where God goes to the divine council and is like, hey, I've got to take this king out. How are we going to do it? And then they have this debate between themselves. How are we going to take out this king? And finally, one of them steps up and says, I'll take care of it. I'll go put a false uh, word in the mouths of his prophets that tells him that if he goes and fights, he'll he'll win when he'll actually die. And that will lure him into the battle. And God goes, good, do it. And this divine council member goes and lies to the king through his uh, oracle prophets and the king thinking that God, the Lord God, has promised him victory in battle, goes to battle and dies.
2: <laughs> and you're like, that one's weird. Um, so all that to say
0: what could be going on here is uh, God is talking to his divine counsel. And he's saying, okay, guys, we're going to make this new thing. And let's make them in our image, in our likeness. But the interesting bit is, the very
2: next sentences don't say anything about other beings. It says, "In God's image, humans are created." Um, Which if also, this
4: is, I was wondering about that because I mean, if it is a sort of angelic council. Um do we have any understanding that the angels are made in God's image?
0: No, specifically they are not made in God's image. We humanity are the only ones made in God's image.
4: Which so if God is saying let us and for, and also that that the angels would help God make man. Maybe that's not necessarily part of maybe you don't have to to argue that to argue that that's what that he's still somehow bringing them into the process but
0: i don't know the so remember what we said about genesis 1 genesis 1 is training ground right in this chapter and it's really genesis like 1 to 4 but heavily in genesis 1 and 2 in these chapters we're being taught
2: how we're going to interact with this account
0: um so folks who hold to the third view would say uh what what we're seeing here is the fact that god uses agents to accomplish his will and very clearly other places in scripture this divine counsel is used as his agent to accomplish his will and he might say, I'm going to do this, but then an angel shows up to accomplish it. At the same time, an angel might show up and do something, and he says, I, God, am the one who did it. And so there's a blurring of the lines between God and his agents who accomplish his will. Kind of like the buck stops here. I'm God. I'm the one who said we're going to do this. And even though we did it, I'm the one who did it. I made the choice. I started it in motion, that kind of thing. So what
2: what they would say is um, the plurality here is God talking to his uh,
0: divine counsel. Um, divine, not meaning they're divine, but that it's his counsel and he's divine. So it's his divine counsel because he's divine. Um, he's talking to his divine counsel and saying, hey guys, gather around. This is big. You need to see this. I'm going to do this. Let's let's do this together. Hang with me. Watch this happen. And then
2: he does it. Um, But it
0: doesn't relate us to angels or this divine counsel in a special way clearly the next couple of verses are talking about how it relates humans to god in a special way
1: so is this then like we are recognizing god as king as someone who is higher than us is that
2: what you're getting at uh
0: in the text or in what we're talking about
1: i guess like in in the text, like I mean we have this like infinite being who is creating everything um obviously he he carries a lot of power and weight like as a king would,
5: uh, yeah
2: and kings don't kings often talk in like a plural form of us and we and them oh. Uh. kings
0: uh, in modern history do some kings in ancient history do as far as i am aware nowhere else in scripture does god so if this is a divine plurality it's the only one in scripture that i'm aware
1: of. i think maybe he would only need to do it once to make it clear <laughs> no <I'm just>
0: <laughs> it could be again this is see this is the bit about meditation literature right so sometimes you have to put forth a hypothesis and then go spend a lot of time in other places to come back and and judge between the different hypotheses that have been put out about what's going on I as far as the the three options I laid out I would put myself in the third option I think based on some of the study that I've done in the last year it is likely that he is talking to his divine counsel. And I think that for several reasons. First of all, we're in the training ground. We're in the training ground of how to read scripture. And so if we're going to run into the divine counsel later, if we're going to run into uh, angels and their activities, to have them completely absent from these chapters, doesn't make much sense if this isn't the training ground. So I think it's likely divine counsel because it's part of our training of how to read it. Uh, I think it is likely divine counsel because of other places where he works with this divine counsel to accomplish things And since he says let's do this together and then clearly does it alone, I think the point of that is, like I was saying earlier, hey everyone gather around, this is really important and I need you to be here to see this. Let's do this together. And then he does it so that it's very clear for this divine council, this is important. I am making Humans, and you need to pay attention to this. Uh, and we see the interaction between humans and angels later in scripture. Frequently, angels are showing up to aid us, encourage us, to rescue us, to serve us in various ways on behalf of God who sent them. So, uh, we're not made in the angels' image, but we're going to have a lot of interactions with angels all throughout this account and even in modern times the church is still uh giving accounts of
2: angelic interactions um so
0: i think that's the most likely between the three of those uh i don't think it's the divine plurality because you don't see that elsewhere in scripture um and there are many other opportunities where the divine plurality could have been used in these couple of chapters, especially at the beginning, where it talks about both the Elohim creating and the spirit of Elohim being present. That would have been an excellent opportunity for divine plurality for both of them. Um, I also don't think it's revealing the Trinity yet, because, again, you've got opportunities at the beginning of the chapter where you could use that plural language to connect those two and start confessing the Trinity there, and it's not used. Um, I think this is so broad and basic, the concept of the Elohim, the divine being who's creating, that we haven't gotten
2: there quite yet. So,
6: Mark, have the angels been created at this point? Yes. Because in the next verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, it's basically saying everything has been created and it's done.
2: So, when were the angels created?
0: Another excellent question. One thing we said about humans in verse 26 is that they would have dominion. And that occurs one other place in chapter
2: one. Um, That occurs on day four.
0: And in verse 16, it says, God made the two great lights, the greater light for ruling the day and the smaller light for ruling the night
2: and the stars. That word ruling
0: there is the same word in Hebrew as dominion is for people. So these things that hang out in the sky are given dominion in the sky the way humanity is given dominion
2: on the Earth. That's kind of interesting.
0: Now, if you're an ancient Mesopotamian uh, or Palestinian, Canaanite, Babylonian, whatever, um,
2: the stars are gods, right? So Genesis 1 being,
0: I think, polemical here, is saying, you all think they're gods, but they're not gods. They're created by the god, and they have dominion up there,
2: but what's the extent of their dominion? The extent of their dominion is to rule the day and the night, to mark the day and the night,
0: uh, and to be as signs be as signs for set times for days and for years so so their responsibility is to mark time and give instruction to people to man on when to do certain things Uh, so in verse 14 where it says that they may be for signs for set times for days and years there's a technical term in there that we'll run into later in the torah when Leviticus starts telling us when to have festivals at the appointed time, it's the, it's the same word here in Genesis 1. So these lights in the skies are telling us when to do things to remember the works of God. And they have dominion to do that. Nothing else in creation besides humans is given dominion. Um, so... Uh, put aside your 19th and 20th century hats that stars are big burning balls of hydrogen gas out in the vacuum of space because if we import that to the text, we're being like rude Americans showing up in France expecting people to speak English to us and point us to the local McDonald's. So if we set aside our scientific understanding of stars and say... How does the author of Genesis, how is he helping us understand the reality of creation using these things? If my neighbor thinks that star is a god, if I dwell on this, I'm coming to the conclusion that God has created something that moves around up there. They're doing this. They're constantly walking around and doing this dance that is here to help me do something that i'm responsible for doing so as far as when were they created i think that this uh, day four is essentially the account of the creation of the
2: spiritual heavenly beings questions on that that That's
0: taken me, like, eight months to wrestle with, wrap my mind around, and begin to get comfortable with, so uh, if that sounds very uncomfortable to you today, that that's totally fine.
2: Um, this doesn't have to
1: do with that necessarily, but in the light of, like, the order in which God is going about creating each one of these things in creation like all obviously leading up to the creation of of man and woman but like is there significance to that order and like is there like why did he make vegetation or or rather why did he make uh birds and sea creatures before other stuff like why were they the first
2: yeah Go, go for it.
4: Uh, is that there, the parallel between the first three days and the second three days that the, there's the division of the, the waters above and the waters below, which is then repeated, echoed in day five, where you are filling the waters above or the, you know, the skies with birds and waters below. And then on day four, day three, you have the creation of dry land and filling it with vegetation. And then on day six, you have the filling of that, the populating of that space.
2: Yeah.
4: It seems like it's all going to like culminate finally in the creation of man. Like that's like everything is sort of prepared for man to
0: arrive. And who can recall what we talked about with Tohu Vavohu last week, wild and
2: waste? Or it might say in your translation, formless and void at the beginning of the chapter. That was like uninhabitable. Yeah. So there's no order. And it's not inhabitable.
1: Right. So God establishes order, which then brings about abundance. Well, I don't think the abundance happens until man's created. But
2: uh, as
1: co creators who continue to cultivate uh, and unlock creation. But
2: yeah. Um, we'll get
0: there. On page two, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So uh, if if things start out and things are formless and void, they're unordered and uninhabitable, and it's just this empty wasteland. No one wants to live there. These are the terms used for deserts, like deadly deserts and other places of scripture. They're like I don't want to live there. You can't live there. It's it's not habitable. And so. Uh, as we walk through the days, the first three days is all about God establishing order and ordering these places and setting it up so that it is habitable, not just habitable, but like nicely habitable. And then the next three days is God going about filling these habitable spaces. So we've gone from something that's tohu vavohu, wild and waste, to something that's lush and inhabited. Um, This is one of the reasons, uh, I think it was after we kind of closed down the standard hour and a half, and then we started our extra half hour, uh, where we talked about uh, creationism, and is Genesis chapter 1 uh, is the intent of Genesis chapter one to convey to us the historical reality of a six-day creation. And um, I posited that it's not. Uh, it's it's just not on the author's radar. That's not what he's concerned about, of whether or not it actually took six literal days to create creation or not. Um, it's... It's completely possible that it did take six literal days to create creation. Uh, that I'm not arguing for or against that. What I was saying is, I don't think the author has his sight set on that. His sights are set on this tohu avohu, and God's response to something that isn't good, where it's uninhabitable, uh, and emptiness, and god's reaction to that is that's not good we need to do something about that and so he creates order and then he fills it and everything's good but we don't get as seth observed earlier we don't get to the point where it's really good until mankind is created so i'm going to do a little bit of a data dump here for you i'm going to give you a uh, a speed word study and uh, some information, and then we're going to reflect on that a little bit. Uh, so if you look at humankind, there's, there's tons and tons going on here. Um, one of the big things is that we're made in God's image. So the word there used for image um, is a curious word. It's not a single use word. So you would imagine if we're so special and we're made in God's image, um, you might only encounter this in Genesis chapter one. Um, And you certainly wouldn't encounter it again, perhaps with people. Um, But that's not the case. You run into it a a fair amount. Um, The next time you run into it, is with Adam when he has a son after his own image,
2: um, but the then there's like a really
0: long pause, and then the next time you run into it, we're describing something that's a little bit awkward, and we're gonna read it. We're gonna jump forward to First Samuel, First Samuel, Second Samuel. Hang on a second.
2: Uh, second Samuel. I was right to begin with. You know, there was this one day when I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't. Thank you for some of you who got that.
0: Okay, so we're in chapter five. Uh, do you all remember the story of the time when the Philistines made off with the ark?
2: Nods or not? Yep. Yep. Okay,
0: so they make off with the ark, they capture the ark, and they take it to back to their temple, and they put it in the temple with Dagon, their god, and Dagon keeps falling down and worshiping in front of the Ark, which is kind of unnerving to them. So they keep setting Dagon back up. And uh, then they come in the next day, and Dagon's got both his hands and his head cut off. And they're just like, all right, you know what? We should give this back. This this is a little too distressing. Let's give this back. Um, But part of that story is they're struck with... uh, um,
2: To, uh, and the word just flew out of my mind. I'm hunting for it in the text. Uh, plagues. First or second uh, well,
4: Samuel chapter five.
0: First Samuel chapter. Five. Oh,
4: okay,
0: okay, got it. Okay. Yep. Sorry. So one of the plagues they're struck with is tumors and the other plague they're struck with is mice so when they go to give this back when they finally decided this really isn't worth it let's just let's just give it back um they're like so what what do we need to do to be healed um and i'm in six verse four they said what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land
2: and give glory to the God of Israel. Now
0: that's very interesting. So the same word that describes us in relation to God has just described hunks of gold that show plagues which
2: God rained down on Philistines. So you
0: keep looking at that, and what you get is there's two words. Uh, they are used for similar circumstances, and what the one word is, is image and the other word is idol. So in the 10 commandments where it says, do not make idols, it's that second word. And and that term is different than the first because it's a term of um, creation. So, uh, it's, it's a carving term, literally a carving term. And in, in some of your translations, if you looked at the Ten Commandments, it might say, do not make graven images, like carved images. So one of them is a carving term and one of them is a term of representation. And that's this word that we're encountering in Genesis 1. But they're used, they, they're like a, a cross-purposes you can use them interchangeably in the situation of idols. So if, if you look at that and you get a cup of coffee and take a long walk and think about it for a while, what you end up coming to the conclusion is people are idols.
2: Now you have to scrub the negative
0: connotation of that term and take a just at face value an idol is a representative of
2: something in in the physical form so in
0: uh israel's history israel has this real problem of making physical representations of both yahweh god Allah, the golden calf at the bottom of Mount Sinai, uh, as well as foreign gods, that they go make this wooden image and then they worship that image. Um, They've got a real problem doing that. Juxtapose that with Genesis 1, where Genesis 1 is telling us God made male and female
2: in his image. So what's that saying is, we, people, are his representatives on earth to execute his will and to show his ways and have them present and active on the earth. That takes us back to Psalm 1 ah and yeah game. yeah so one of the reasons god gets so upset with this idol stuff like don't make idols just don't make idol part of it is he's saying look you're you're
0: showing to me dishonor when you run to these foreign gods, he calls them whores, adulterous women. Uh, he's got this image of Israel in himself, and Israel is his wife. And he talks about it, like in Hosea, as his adulterous wife who goes and just runs around and hangs out with all these foreign gods. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very painful image.
2: Uh, it's it's a, a deeply hurtful image. And
0: reality. Um, so he's saying, "Look, look at your relationship with me and what you're doing and saying to me." But at the same time, he's turning around and he's saying, "Look at it, you. You're debasing yourself. Why would you, my images,
2: grovel at the feet of other images?
0: You are my representatives in this earth. And you would go and bow before the representatives of foreign
2: gods? Why? Why would you do that to yourself? Don't do that. So everyone's got their head tilted thinking a little bit about that. So let's just have a chance to reflect on that. I'm still waiting for the vestments to come into this. <laughs> we'll get
3: there. Uh, question? hmm So when you said representatives, that's made me think about angels again
2: and how we said that
3: they weren't, the angels are not created in God's image, but the angels are representatives that do God's will,
2: right? Uh, Technically angels, what that word means is messenger.
0: So yeah, they're kind of representatives. But they're not as high of a representative. They're just carrying a message. They're not in their physical presence representing God.
2: They're his go between.
3: I mean, like we said earlier, if they, like the angels do something and, you know, because God sent them to do that, God says, I did that. Right? Like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So
2: I guess, in that way, I was kind of thinking of they're they're sort of representing him I guess not necessarily. It's I mean, they're, they're at some
0: level, they are representative him because they're showing up and and saying, Hey, God told me or to they're tell on you this, behalf or...
3: of him or right yeah. right.
0: but they they do not share the space of being his his images on this earth the same way
2: we do they're in a different category this is um a tangent um, but do
4: humans end up, oh, I don't know, it's, this is such a, never mind. this is, I, I'm going to save it, saving the question for another day.
2: It's okay. You can pose it and then we can shelve it.
4: I, well, I'm just thinking about, um, the spiritual beings that are created and whether there's a kind of fall of the spiritual beings and whether humans, whether there's some relationship between the idols that humans worship and fallen
2: spiritual beings.
0: That's a good question.
4: But it's not really addressing what we're talking about right now, so.
0: It's tangential, we'll get there, but that's a good question.
4: Okay.
2: Is that, like, saying
1: that we're, like, the second go-around? Or, like, like God created the angels, <laughs> like, they messed up, and then, like, he created us? Like-
2: uh, no. And, I, I, uh...
1: That's just, like, a simple way of putting it, but, like...
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's a good question. Um, To help us kind of muse on that, our relationship with the angels, let's read Psalm 8.
3: I can read it. Go for it, Seth. Okay, Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.
2: Glory be
0: to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning,
2: is now, and
0: ever shall be, from the world without end. Amen. Thanks, Seth. Okay. So let's flip back and forth between Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, because this is this is the psalmist dwelling on Genesis 1, just like
2: we're dwelling on Genesis 1 at the moment.
0: So the question here is, and it's a good question, what's going on with God making
2: angels or spiritual beings? Um, We can continue to use those, but I want to be really clear. The term angel
0: is a a role term. Literally, it means messenger. And so there are a lot of things in scriptures that are called, in Greek, ungloss. That's where we get angel. Ungloss, and anglos means messenger. And sometimes these spiritual beings are called angelos, And sometimes humans are called ungloss. Uh We just, when we see it next to a human, your English translates it as messenger instead of angel. So angel is a role, not a being.
2: Okay. Now in Western...
0: Christianity, we've taken this term angel and used it to be a category, which is fine as long as we understand where we got it and and understand how to use it so we don't mess ourselves up as we get farther into scripture. So, if you want to continue in using angelos, angel, as a category of divine being, that's fine run with it, but understand it's not actually a category in the scripture, and you're going to run into other things like seraphims and cherubims that aren't gloss. They have different roles in God's work, so they never get called ungloss. Uh, In fact, the seraphim and the cherubim don't even look like people, whereas... The spiritual beings who show up as messengers
2: frequently do look like people. Elena?
4: Um, in Psalm 8, are the uh, creatures described in verse 5, is that angelos, or is that a different...
0: No. Word? That's Elohim. Hmm. That's that same word in Genesis 1 that we used for God, Elohim. It's used here in genesis or in uh, psalm 8 5 and uh okay so what what does your translation translate it as angels okay so it says angels in yours Ooh, does anyone have anything else
2: god heavenly beings oh, okay
0: you have god tyler what are you working in what translation
1: uh i'm working out of ESV, but I'm also looking at uh, NASB and NRSB.
0: Okay, yeah. And Dad, you said spiritual beings, heavenly beings, heavenly beings. Anyone have anything else?
2: Okay, yeah. So the word here is um, uh,
0: Elohim, which Elohim is a category if you're going to scratch out angel in your mind and you want to use something different the word to put in there is Elohim keep in mind though that's a broad term and so occasionally it gets used for the living God in fact in Genesis 2 well all throughout Genesis 1 God is just called the Elohim, the spiritual being. And we don't really know who this spiritual being is until we get to Genesis 2.5, where for the first time it clarifies who this spiritual being is. And in 2.5 it calls him Yahweh Elohim. So it uses his proper name and helps you understand this Elohim we've been talking about well, this, this is Yahweh Elohim, so let's be here about that. So in Genesis or in Psalm 8:5, Tyler, the reason why one of your translations says you've made him a little lower than God is because the people overseeing that translation know the connections and probably for the most part. Throughout your translation, whenever you run into Elohim, they treat it like a proper name of God and translate it as God, which is also problematic because God is the word most frequently used to translate Elohim in scripture for us in English. Um, and we have been taught to treat it like a proper name, and it, often it puts it as a proper name. So if you look at Genesis one, one in the beginning, I'm sure all of your translations say it's God created the heavens and that God is capitalized, but,
2: um, it's, it's not a proper name there.
1: Um, am I, I thought I was muted. Um, it's interesting, cause I was flipping through some other translations and which one, um, I even went as far as, um, looking at the message and in that one, it's lowercase g.
2: Yeah. Sometimes Eugene Peterson gives you some very useful hints.
1: Yeah. I don't often look at that. I have it in here just as references, just because it's interesting.
0: Yeah. So I think the best translation in 8.5 is Heavenly Beans. And that um
1: would be ESV or?
0: A, n- a number of them have it. ESV, I believe, uses. NIV. Uh, Heavenly Beans. NIV mm-hmm. uses it as well.
2: Yeah, uh, you might have a different version, though. Uh, when did you buy your Bible? Are you talking to me? No, I'm talking to Elena. I'm pretty sure she bought it after my dad bought his. <laughs> 2011.
4: 2011,
2: yeah. Which,
0: yours, Dad, is early 90s at the latest, right?
6: uh yeah i bet it is it's very old not as old as me
0: <laughs> yeah so heavenly beans i think is the better translation here for elohim
2: in that sentence so this is okay or, sorry go ahead tyler
1: well no go ahead
2: so um this is really interesting if you look at Four, five, and six, right? So in four, the
0: psalmist is saying, like, why do you even bother thinking about us? Like we're nothing. Why do you bother with us? And
2: five starts yet. Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. So it, it's not like a subservient thing. It's not like a second class. It's, it's kind of like wondering. Like, why do you bother with us dirt people?
0: But you made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you crowned us with glory and honor. It doesn't talk about the heavenly beings being crowned with glory and honor. It talks about the Adam the humans, the dirt people being crowned with glory. And then six takes it even further. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his
2: feet. So if the psalmist is um, reflecting here between spiritual beings and Adam, Adam,
0: dirt people, and he's paying attention to dominion let's go back to genesis 1 and pay attention to dominion which we've talked about already so this should be pretty straightforward for us so if these spiritual beings as i've posited show up in 126 where god's saying let us make man in our image after our likeness as kind of a a, come on guys come over here let's do this together, be present when I do this. And the creation of these spiritual beings shows up on day four, which starts in verse 14. What's the difference between
2: their dominion and our dominion? our dominion is limited to what's on earth their dominion
6: would be everything around us which would include more than just us i believe
2: is that what it says
6: it must not if you ask
0: I suppose I should have used my uh, vaguer. Where do you see that in the text?
2: (laughs) It does
3: say that man has dominion over everything on earth. Yeah. I mean, I guess it includes birds of the heavens.
2: Um, Yeah, that's weird. Because that's not our dwelling place. True. Who, who dwells in the heavens? God. Elohim. The
0: Elohim, yeah. And yet the birds who go into the heavens, who has yep. dominion over them?
1: Last week, didn't you guys talk about how, like, heavens could be also a general term for, like, just, like, what is up there?
2: It is, like yeah. The sky? Yep. The stuff up there.
0: The heavens. It's not a... When when we think of heaven frequently as, again, Western Christians and coming out of the 21st century, um, most likely we're thinking of either some sort of throne room-like place where God hangs out or the place that we'll all go
2: in the future, which, spoiler alert, that also isn't true it's far cooler than that um so in genesis
0: 1 it's not talking about either of those things it's just talking about the stuff up there so the heavens the sky sky is a good english translation so the skies
2: who hangs out in the skies well two Two groups, one of them's the birds. The other one is the Elohim, like you said, and you yeah, would think if the,
3: it. it, it. also talked about like, like the light in the heaven or whatever. Right. And there's not birds flying around in the stars, right? At least not that we were aware of in today's uh, uh, science, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. But, uh, what's. What is it, 1960s this is the uh, first time man had this image of Earth floating in a vacuum, right? So
0: we've got a uh, the world stops, right? The world stops at the blue stuff, or creation stops at the blue stuff. Genesis 1 doesn't doesn't have a concept of beyond the blue stuff, beyond the stuff up there. So we know that our sun is millions and millions of miles from us. But as far as Genesis 1 is concerned, it's just up there. Sometimes it seems close
2: enough to touch. So it's
0: odd that the Elohim or these I'm connecting there. These lights that hang out in the sky, they have dominion. But the birds that hang out in the sky, the lights don't have dominion
2: over them. The dirt people have dominion over them. Go for it, Tyler. (laughs) Yeah, when you start kind of mulling on it, like... Mmm Let me read Psalmate again.
0: Yeah. what is man that you're mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you care for him? Yet, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly
2: beings, and crowned him with glory and honor.
0: These heavenly beings that everyone else around me, they worship them. These heavenly beings up there, they're the gods of my Canaanite neighbor. You've made me lower than them, but you didn't crown them with glory and honor. You crowned us with glory and honor. You gave us dominion over all the works of your hands, even the birds.
2: Do you you see
0: as the psalmist is dwelling on this, what's coming after you? Yeah. So uh, back to your question, Tyler, which is a really good one. Are we like round two? Well, we tried the spiritual beans and that didn't work, so eh, we'll try dirt people this time. Clearly not. Clearly there's something really special about us being dirt people, yet crowned with glory and honor and given dominion beyond
2: anything we seem to have right to have. Which leads us to another question, which will usher us into vestment discussions. So, what is your concept of humanity? You have a high view, or do you have a low view of humanity? What have you, as a modern American, been taught to have?
1: Human beings set.
2: Good summary. Does anyone want to add to that? In- recounting the depravity of mankind there's also a very high view of man out there you know that we're capable of anything okay and also that humans are very valuable yeah any examples of the high views of humanity celebrity
4: okay i was going to go
2: yeah.
4: i was going to go with dostoevsky but you know uh, <laughs> just when he yeah. talks when he talks about sort of the like the feeling at the end of the 19th century that like like mankind sort of ubermensch like mankind can't be stopped, yep. you know, like all we need to do is just sort of keep perfecting who we are and, um, we can do anything. I think we, it's sort of like a, um, Tower of Babel kind of mentality, you know? Yeah.
2: So, um, it, if you want to take that, what Elena
0: just said, Go read the Tower of Babel and pay attention to the where, where the word head shows up. Like, head. That's a fun one. Go do that sometime. Yeah, so there's this, like, man can do anything. We can,
2: uh, together, we can subject everything to our will. We can overcome anything our people go ahead
6: i think the smarter we get the the dumber we become (laughs) as i look back you know i remember my parents saying that long ago and i thought you know i i don't get it but when i look back now it's it's like we're on a big treadmill and every so many years we're kind of back at the same place and it's like how did we get here i, I thought we've been here before oh that's right we we used to do it this way and it's yeah. uh
2: thank <laughs> i think it's like humanity that
6: uh it seems like we're getting ahead but we've suddenly find ourselves back where we were once before.
2: Yeah. That's going to show up in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Kind of the introduction of that cyclical back again at the same point. I think there was a
6: wilderness that Moses got caught up in. (laughs) Are we in the same one?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and then you get the exile, right? The Jews
0: get exiled and taken off to Babylon, and then they come back, and uh, they're back in the land, but the exile didn't end. Like, even now, for the Jews, the exile isn't over,
2: even that they're back in the land. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so um, usually I've found when you run into someone who has a high view of humanity, they're generally not Christian. Um, usually they're atheistic or agnostic. Um, and it, the high view of humanity is coupled to humanity's capabilities, not
2: humanity's identity. And
0: generally speaking, when you run into people who have a low view of humanity, they have grasped in, at some level, man's depravity and sinfulness.
2: They might be Christian, they might not be Christian, um,
0: but they've, they've seen that. And they've seen that it outweighs the man's intellect and ability to to conquer things.
2: So does our
0: concept of humanity or our um, view of humanity, high or low, does that seem to match
2: Genesis chapter 1 and Psalm 8? No. No, it doesn't, does it? Um, I don't know if you guys struggle with it, but um, in the New Testament, when it talks about what happens to
0: us when we've been joined to Christ, uh, when when it says things like, you're seated in the heavens with him, uh, when it talks about us being new creations new creatures and uh children of god uh of co-inheritors uh in creation with jesus like
2: equal inheritors with jesus um i have a hard
0: time wrapping my head around that sometimes uh and getting back to an earlier discussion we had tonight about how Sometimes uh, I am I realize that I've gotten myself into this mental place where God isn't my friend anymore because of something I've done. When I'm in that mental place, reading things like you're seated in the heavens doesn't, doesn't even compute. It doesn't make any sense to me. Of the biblical witnesses, There's a extremely high view of humanity, starting in Genesis 1. It is us. We are the images of God on this
2: earth. He didn't choose anyone else. He passed over all the dogs, all the cats,
0: all the cows. He passed over all the spiritual beings, those angels that show up in scripture and even we as modern christians run into helping
2: us they have great powers and they're not his images they didn't get the glory and honor that we got and if if we're to take and put
0: those lenses on that genesis gives us it really transforms everything we look at and everything we touch
2: right this is um
0: one of the big ones I've been thinking about just here in the last week is uh our our concept of work our theology of work like I get up in the morning and I go to my job and as I go to my job I'm an image bearer and what does that
2: mean Um, I'm an engineer, so my job is to show up and watch oil sit on a part and make sure it sits there long enough and enough of it sits
0: there and that they wipe it off enough and sprinkle the right kind of baby powder on it and watch to see if there's any oil
2: left. That's my job least one portion of my job it's not real exciting
0: um i mean oil and baby powder on a big kunk of metal is you know image bear. but if i'm an image bear, when i show up to watch that to interact with the other image bearers who are doing the work that really changes the significance of me staring at a hunk of metal with oil and baby powder on it.
2: Because if the person I'm supposed to be imaging, if um, the creator God, if Yahweh Elohim is the one I'm imaging,
0: and he is all about creating order and allowing life to flourish, and I've been told to have dominion, Then my dominion, the goal of my dominion is to create order and allow things to flourish under my dominion. Um, And so even watching oil and baby powder
2: on a hunk of metal, uh, that eventually is going to go into a big machine that will uh, do a lot of good for a lot of people. That's
0: creating order, and allowing things to flourish. I don't even have to talk to the people next to me, and I'm executing my role as image bearer, just as all of you, whether you're going to work or retired and pursuing other things, being God's image bearer
2: enriches and deepens the the glory of all that you put your hand to. Before I connect that with investments, let me give you an opportunity to mull on that out loud. One might ask then if if we are to have dominion over everything else that's on earth do some of us try to to be uh dominion over our counterparts in a yeah and that can be in a good way or in a bad way but Maybe that's where ego comes in and influences how we react to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in Philemon,
0: like as moderns, we wish Paul would say, "Free, free Philemon!" Like that's your responsibility.
2: But he doesn't say, "Free him." says treat him as your brother which does more than free him Um, not only does it put in motion just
0: you can't hold someone as a slave who's your brother you really believe who God is and you really understand that we're his images you just can't
2: Uh, but it
0: allows an opportunity for Philemon to be the image he was called to be, and though he might be subjected in slavery for a little while longer, he's being the image bearer that he was called to be. He's taking care of someone else, helping to create order, and allowing them to flourish.
2: I think that's one of the reasons why
0: Paul tells slaves, like, don't try to escape. It's okay haven't stolen your image bearer role you can fulfill it just fine right where you're sitting
2: you have not been demeaned by that uh, but
0: when things run off the rails and we take that dominion and apply it to each other as image bearers it's ugly it's very ugly
4: It seems like it's one
2: of the main temptations that many of us face in some way, you know, to just have control over things. Yeah. And control of them, not to the ends and goals of another, but to ourselves. The other being, of course. Yahweh Elohim. So bringing this plane in for a landing, vestments. Sometimes I'm really annoyed
0: with vestments. <laughs> I'm super annoyed with vestments. Um, because I have that feeling of I just there are far more important things to be paying attention to than whether or not I've got this thing on the right direction. And it's really hard to figure out what the right direction a Dalmatic goes on. (laughs) Do I have this on the right direction? And am I wearing the right color of pretty fabric? Especially if five minutes before the service, not paying attention to what color the altar was, I set up with a completely different color. And Father Sean's like, uh, Mark, you set the wrong color. And then I've got to go run around like a chicken with my head cut off, changing the color right before we start so that I'm in a good spiritual place as we begin walking down the aisle. Uh, Sometimes that's very annoying. But what's the point and purpose of all these fancy clothes? Well, first of all, whenever someone puts on, especially one of the Eucharistic vestments, the Dalmatic, which is what I wear, uh, I like to call it the night shirt. Uh, The Chazable, which is what Father Sean wears, I call it the dress, because he has to wear a dress, but I at least get the night shirt. And then there's the tunicle that the subdeacon wears, which is just like the dalmatic, but it doesn't have two bars over it. Um, what, what's, what's the point? Uh, because the first deacons, the, the first time deacons wore dalmatics was in Rome. There were seven deacons in Rome and the emperor gave those deacons permission to wear the dalmatic. Now, the Dalmatic was actually a civil servant's garment at the time. It was a civil servant garment of Rome, and it marked someone out as the servant of the people. And so it was a huge honor for the emperor to extend the privilege of wearing a Dalmatic to deacons because effectively he was saying the church is so important that these deacons are not just the servants of the church but we see and recognize that they the servants of all the people of this empire whether they believe in it or not so it's a big honor and that's a big statement it's an important statement and it's a true statement and none of the deacons wanted to wear them it made them very uncomfortable uh they just didn't want to get mixed up in Rome and what was going on and wanted to keep their separation. And and now we put them on, and most people don't know that history. Um, They just know that if they know anything, they know that it is the clothing of a servant. But it's elaborate and ornate, and they're very expensive, Um, very, very expensive. I could buy
2: easily three or four suits
0: for the price of my one white dalmatic. Um, A lot of time, attention, and expensive fabric goes into it. And when these are put on, part of the point of the liturgy is the person who puts it on ceases to be themselves and their own identity and becomes the thing that that article of clothing marks out. So when I put on my Dalmatic, I'm no longer Deacon Mark. I'm the deacon, which means servant. I'm the servant. I'm the one there to serve everyone around me. I take care of the altar and so that the priest can do his role and not have to worry about that. I take care of the reading of the gospel, and we do a gospel procession, and I serve The people to remind them that our responsibility is to take the word of God and the relationship we have with God out of the church and take it out into the world. And that's what's going on in the gospel procession. I leave the altar, I leave the place where God resides with his people, and I walk out into the congregation. And for a moment, you play the role of the world. And I remind everyone, hey, we constantly be need to be taking the gospel out into the world. This is our responsibility. That's specifically why we process the gospel because the gospels aren't just the four gospels. The gospels stand in for the whole gospel from Genesis to Revelation. And there is a very, very high view of humanity as the images of God as brothers and sisters, co-inheritors with Christ, children of God, and that's why we take the time to put on such beautiful garments and to take care of them and to respect them. Not because the people who wear them are more in people, more important than the people who aren't wearing them in the service. We respect them and take care of them and wear them because the people who wear them are
2: representatives of the people who are watching.
0: So when the priest puts on his garment, right, and he talks to God for the people, he prays on behalf of the people, and then he turns around and talks to the people on behalf of God. Well, that's
2: the role of the priest, yeah? But the
0: New Testament tells us we are a kingdom of priests. We're a royal priesthood. That's what we say in our baptism. Join in the royal priesthood. So when Father Sean puts on those really elaborate, beautiful garments, it's an invitation to see yourselves. This is your role. This is how beautiful you are. This is how important you are. This is how much honor and glory has been put on your shoulders, not as a burden, but as a gift. And when you walk out into the world, although you wear the normal clothes of an American, that's what you walk out as. You walk out as this beautiful representative, this imager of God who's come with the best news that anyone has ever heard before.
2: So I get annoyed with vestments, but the point of
0: vestments is Every time we see that, it's trying to to get us to upload all that stuff out of scripture, to take all these realities, these truths that are witnessed to in this book and bring it back to mind because we need that reminder frequently, we forget it. And when I'm uh, annoyed with the, uh, the finickiness that we can get into, of what garment are we wearing and who's putting it on and when they're putting it on in the service and what color is it and is it the right color for the season and does it match my shoes and whatnot um sometimes we get
2: too caught up in the garments and whatnot uh but they're a tool and the tool is to remind us of these truths Are they necessary
0: yes and no they're a product of our culture right we're western christians we have the inheritance of western christianity um and some of these like the chasuble it's actually a
2: roman traveling garment um so it's kind of western but kind of not because it's the
0: western travel or the roman traveling garment of Jesus' era. It's reminding us of the road to Emmaus and Jesus traveling with a couple of disciples and they don't recognize him. They don't understand who he is until he breaks the bread. And so a priest puts on the traveling garment of a Roman peasant every time he goes to give thanksgiving for Christ as a reminder to us that it was Christ on, at Emmaus. That was the first time that communion eucharist was held after the resurrection and it is in the breaking of the bread that we know jesus all of that you're supposed to be uploading all of that every time someone puts on that fancy garment that costs a lot of money so you might still get annoyed at them sometimes i know i will but now that you know that they also might actually be more
2: helpful than they were before. Uh, And I hope that
0: we, as the people who wear them, some of them are clergy, some of them are not. All of you could wear some of them if you wanted to serve the church in that capacity in the service. I hope we never get so defensive of them and possessive of them that we forget that the whole point of wearing them is to remind you that whether or not you see them hanging around your neck.
2: Christ has put them there. Um, if I may, uh, what if you didn't have them? Could you still do it? Oh, yeah. You don't need them. So, like, would it this ever be, a, like, permissible, like, to not have them and to do it as a sign of remembrance of, like, something else like I don't know if that is ever a thing like to skip wearing the fancy garments yeah like like we are not like we're not wearing today to remember why we wear them I don't know does that make sense I mean the majority of the year we don't do everything uh and in fact in Lent we
0: completely skip them for portions of it um, so there are times in the year where we intentionally forgo them, yeah. And you don't need them. I mean, remember, they're signs and they're symbols. They're not the reality. You wear the reality constantly. You can't take it off. These are just reminders
2: to us. Yeah.
3: I, I had kind of a funny thought, but I, what if, I mean, is it is it necessary to, Well, I guess we already said that some of this is not exactly necessary, it's all reminders, but, um, like, why does it have to be an expensive garment uh, to remind you that now, like, you put on the Dalmatic and you're now the deacon? Um, kind of my funny thought that i pictured in my head was what if you just wore a name tag that says, hello, my name is Deacon, (laughs) you know, as, and maybe that's the symbol instead of some expensive garment. I mean, why does it have to be that?
2: Yeah. Well,
0: one of my Dalmatics is a tablecloth and upholstery fabric. So (laughs) not all of them are that expensive.
2: Um, yeah.
0: Uh, That gets into the conversation, which we're going to have, but I'm not going to dive too deeply into it tonight, of how how can we say that the Old Testament is Christian scripture, and it's useful to understanding how we order our lives. Um, And if you look at what God instructed the Israelites to do in setting up the temple, like... Our churches are cheap compared to what God had them doing wandering around in a desert, let alone once they got settled in Jerusalem. Um, So that the God's intentional intentionality of when you have wealth. I want you to devote your wealth, your monetary wealth to this thing, not this thing devoted to this thing. He's ordering our priorities and what we do with the money. And it ends up going to recognizing who we are, recognizing who God is, and then to taking care of other image bearers. It's essentially what it boils down to. All right, we're long past our 8.30 end time. Um, I didn't pause at 8.30, and I apologize. I, I mean to pause there and say, all right, if you need to leave, You can can go. Uh, Don't feel like you have to hang out. Um, I hope this was interesting. If you've got more questions on it, uh, please let me know. Mull on it over the week. Go as the cow chews its cud. Chew on some of the scripture and think on it. Um, And hopefully delight, delight in what God has done in you. Uh, Not just from the very beginning of inherently making you images, but then adopting you as his children and and through your baptism, making you co-inheritors with Christ our Lord.
2: The Lord be with you. He's with your spirit.
0: Let us pray. Father, we thank you for a chance to be here, uh, to open your word, to explore it, to marvel at the works of your hands. Uh, to wonder at the attention you have given us as your images. We pray that you would equip us, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see how the mundane things in this world that we set our hands to purely by us setting our hands to it in your name become marvelous and wondrous. Uh, We pray that those times, uh, for they are frequent, where we have completely and utterly failed to be your images. We have totally missed what it is to be your representatives on this earth, to love and care for those around us as you, through Christ, have done for us. We beg your forgiveness. We ask that you bring those up before our eyes, that you would seal our hearts in love, that we would turn in repentance, and that you would wash us anew and help us in this coming week to walk truly in the light, the marvelous light that you have called us into. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
6: Amen. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming, everyone. Thank you. you. Good night. We'll see you next week. Have a good time.
0: Thanks again for joining us. We hope this has been a helpful and encouraging time hanging out with myself and some of the other members of our congregation who were walking through this portion of Genesis. You know, we believe that the story of the Lord's activity throughout time to care for, to forgive, and to renew His creation, and especially people, His image bearers, has practical wisdom for our moment in history. And we hope you've gotten to know Jesus a little bit better through this time that you've spent with us. We hope you join us again for our future episodes and continue learning and growing with us. God be with you.